Hi there, listener, and welcome to this Ski Podcast special, which is an interview with Tom Greenall. Tom explains how he qualified as a pisteur in France, enabling him to join the Ski Patrol. He talks about how it started off with racing against 11-year-olds to learning how to ski with a blood wagon in his hands. It's a very interesting story that I think you'll enjoy and one rarely tackled by Brits. So sit back and listen to How to Become a Pisteur. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Tom Greenall who is going to be telling us how he can qualify or how it's possible to qualify as a pisteur in France. Now, Tom is based in Chamonix. He's the founder of uh, Idris Skis, uh, uh, which is was an environmental ski way before everyone else started uh, creating them back in uh, uh, 2009. He also ran a cat skiing operation in Japan, which we're going to run as a feature in the podcast at some point in the future. But currently based in Chamonix. How are you today, Tom? Very well, thank you. And have you been on the mountain recently? Go on, tell us. Uh, snowshoeing yesterday and ski touring the day before. Great. And what are the conditions like at the moment for ski touring? Uh, at the moment, uh, they're soft underfoot and a little scary in the high mountain because we've had a lot of snow and now the temperature is rising. Right. Okay. Um, where Whereabouts have you done your ski touring? Um, myself uh, here in Les Uches and mostly in Saint-Gervais and Les Contamine as the right. whole world is playing with the big hills. Yes. Okay. It's a busier week at the moment. Well, I'm, I'm very jealous of the fact that you've been able to go onto the mountain. But the reason um, I asked you to uh, to meet up today is to find out more about, to me, a British person becoming uh, a pisteur. It's quite an amazing story. And I believe it's, you know, it's obviously quite difficult to do. And I wondered if you could just take us through the steps the many steps that you have to go through to be able to to get that qualification. How does it how does it start off? What's the the starting point? The start, as with almost all sports uh, qualifications in France, starts by going to visit your doctor. <laughs> right. You need a certificate of fitness, or rather, a certificate saying that there is no reason against you doing this particular sport or qualification yeah um i i do a bunch of uh, trail running uh which is often in france or even triathlons and for all of those either a triathlon or a trail running you need to have a signed document from your doctor saying that you're fit to be able to take part so you get your certificate and then uh, obviously what's the next step literally off to the races okay you need a test technique, which is a test of how good you are at skiing off-piste. But to be allowed to do this, you must prove that you can ski quickly, which in this case means doing a ski school race, normally with the ESF, and reaching the level of Fleche Vermillion, which is the okay. second highest level. The second highest level. OK. And, and the way that works, if I recall correctly, normally there's like a forerunner who sets a time and then you have to get a certain percentage of their time. Is that right? Yep, this is true. And I thought, well, I'm a reasonably good skier. I've skied a couple of serious North Faces. I have raced as a kid, although that's more than 25 years ago. <laughs> so I rocked up with a pair of peace skis, joined up with a bunch of 
10 to 15 year olds and <laughs> one or yeah. two others who are actually retired skiers, re retired people who are yeah, skiing and deciding to get into racing for a bit of fun, thought this will be easy and failed to qualify by 0.04 seconds. Right. Okay. Gutting. Yeah. How many times um, did you have to do it then before you managed to get that? Just that, twice. The million. Okay. But between the first and second, uh, I uh, was lucky enough to uh, get some training from my friend Glenn Plake, who you <laughs> may or may not have heard of. <laughs> it sounds, sounds a little like you're, you're name dropping uh, there, Tom, but I believe uh, Glenn Plake has strong connections with the Chamonix Valley. He's often out there. Is that right? Yes, he owns a place in the centre of Chamonix, and this winter will be the first winter he's not skied here since 1987. Right, okay, but he's not known as a racer, so what kind of tips was he giving you? Well, he is a fully qualified instructor, and he did race up until his debut in the Extreme Movies. Okay, so uh, he gave you a few tips, and that helped you get ahead of the 11-year-old. Uh, he tied me, tidied up my skiing, and I was three whole seconds faster on my next go, but the fall alpha was two whole seconds faster, so I passed by just under a second. Okay, great. So that's the first step. You get your, your uh, flesh, and then you can go straight into the test technique, can you? Yes. Um, the test technique is very similar to the test technique that the guides would have but only in descent form you don't also have to run up a hill um it is officially 300 vertical meters of off piste and you show that you can ski fast and well in reality it's 450 plus meters of unpleasant moguls okay that they would always pick that type of terrain would they or is that because um, people have gone the, down already that is the minimum if they can they find something less pleasant to ski but is safe okay so you're skiing you have to you have to ski a, a certain descent off piste and yep. ski it well and fast so that's really a very subjective viewpoint right yes, there's no time but, involved or anything like that um but to put it in perspective, they're looking for um, speeds of 50 kilometers an hour or greater and large, smooth turns, regardless of how bumpy it is. You do not ski the zipper line as a, a mogul competitor. Right. That, OK. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No well, Daffy's in the middle of your uh, uh, run then. <laughs> uh, Daffy would be acceptable, but um, 10 continuous short turns is a no-no. Uh, when you change angle, so you go over a rollover, you can put in three or four short turns to get your bearings and then return to giant slalom or even super giant slalom turns and just making the moguls disappear by compressing them. Right. So there's very... Um specific guidelines now i would think that given your uh, background a lot of uh, off-piece skiing this would suit you much more than the racing side of things does that mean it was easier to get through this stage um once i knew what i was doing um it took <laughs> me four attempts right okay the first attempt um i i knew about it at the last minute um i was phoned at 5 p.m by uh, the organizers in puissant vincent 
Um, I drove overnight to get there, promptly turned up and I didn't fall over, but that was probably the best bit about my skiing. Right. And Prisum Vanson, if you're going from Chamonix, that's somewhere down near say, Chevalier or Briançon or something. Is yep, that right? It's Briançon and then it's about 45 minutes further on. Yeah, so you had to drive from Chamonix down there overnight, then get up and ski the next day, trying yep. to, you know, fulfill all these uh, criteria. Yeah, uh, not knowing what any of the criteria were. But... <laughs> so that one didn't go through. You got um, well, uh, let... chance? Well, it, like I said, it was my fourth go, but this yep. first one um, really set me up for, ah, this is a bit tougher than I expected. Right. There was 150 people in the morning and 150 people in the afternoon. Okay. Two to four foot high refrozen moguls. They accepted five people from the morning session and three from the afternoon session. Oh, my God. That is such a low pass rate. Um, my next was in Chatel. Yep. But it was a rescheduled one that was supposed to be up in the Vosges in the north. Yeah, okay. Um, I did actually have three days' notice of the rescheduling. <laughs> this one was much larger moguls. You could almost lose yourself between them, but very variable weather. The visibility was okay for the first 10, and then the visibility was less than 10 feet. Yeah, no, not ideal. Um, for what the guy in front of me... Um, was a uh, competitor on the World Freeride Tour. The guy behind me was a competitor on the Fizz Slalom Circuit. All three of us received 11.5 out of 12. Sorry, 11.5 out of 20. You need 12 to pass. Right, okay. So were, that did that have similar pass rates uh, to the, the first no, one that um, you went to? Suspiciously... Um, most people who had a Vosges address passed and 37 <laughs> out of 90 passed. Right. But they know full well that they are going to end up working in their part of the world and they really struggle to attract pistas being what's known to most skiers as the flat part of France. Yeah, for sure. Uh, to listeners who are not familiar with that, the Vosges is... is to the north, just uh, kind of, I want to say, opposite uh, Germany on the on the it's, other side of the river. I can't think of what the river is. Yeah, the Rhone. The, the Rhone. Yeah. The Rhine. The Rhine. The Rhine. And it, it's a part of France which has, in our history, been German. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But I um, I understand what you're saying there. You know, if you if you live in uh, Vosges, you're probably not going to be coming down to the Alps to work. So that was a second one in Châtel. Uh, <laughs> third one, where was that one? Third one was Ser Chevalier. Um, probably 20 people passed again. Nice weather, nice conditions. I just didn't know what they were particularly looking for. So on smoother sections, I did large sweeping turns on mogul fields. I just held the zipper line and put in quite pretty turns. But hmm. I didn't know that this isn't what they were looking for. It must have been really frustrating by this stage. I mean, you've you've gone along three times. You're traveling around uh, uh, the country. You know, that's another one in the uh, in the southern uh, French Alps. Did you... 
always you obviously must have been very determined that you were going to keep going with this project I, and not... I knew from friends um uh who'd previously done it that it was a challenge to pass the test and there wasn't always rhyme and reason the best example is a french friend who is actually a uh, first aid instructor she had been a ski patroller for five years in canada seven years on the world freeride tour and passed her test technique on her sixth go <laughs> right okay well you, that that's encouraging because you said you passed on your fourth so we're coming to mm. the fourth now where was that one back in serge valley as uh, back in puissant vincent sorry yeah where i had first um tried but the big difference this time is I managed to get a space on the preparation course. Right. Okay. The preparation course was being run by a mountain guide instructor who specialized in this particular test and the guides test. Right. Okay. And would you be, would that give you the opportunity to ski the actual location for the test itself? Yes. But in the end, it was the knowing what they wanted to see and a week right. of very hard physical training. Yeah, this I mean, you know, in, when you're talking about something um, qualitative like that, you need to know what the, the, the judges, if that's what they call the arbiters yeah. or, or whatever, are looking for. And I can see how being there in advance and having that prep, you know, would, you know, rather than schlepping somewhere overnight like you had to before. So that was brilliant. So you qualified. How do you find out that you've qualified? Do they send a letter or is it at the end of the course? Or um, Most times you can't, you just stand around and wait at the end uh, for hours on end. Or you can generally phone them that evening yeah. or wait four days for an email or three weeks for the letter oh my god yeah so how <laughs> did you find out on that successful uh um one at puis and vincent um they phoned me that evening cool that must have been very super exciting it, for it you. was a, a great sense of relief especially as the whole ski world stopped existing the next day due to our current situation Ah, right. Okay. So that's the timing of it. So it was around a year ago, roughly, March uh, uh, 20. It was, 20 it was the Friday and on the Saturday evening, the French resorts closed, I think, 19th yeah. of March. Wow, or great, like great, <laughs> great timing, Tom. That's That's fantastic. In this section, Tom explains about the first aid courses he had to take and also about the full piste course, how you actually get that qualification. So that's the skiing side of things. You had to have your flesh and you have you have your test technique. You mentioned um you know, a friend of yours who took six times who had a first aid qualification. But at the same time as all of this, you also have to have those type of qualifications as well. Is that right? Yes. Um in France there is a, a standard for anybody who works in the rescue industry, whether you be a firefighter, a policeman a ski patroller, a lifeguard, etc. And it is called Premier Secure Equipe, First Aid in a Team, Levels 1 and 2. And um, generally you do this with a fire brigade and it takes two weeks. 
Okay. Sorry, when you say you do it with the fire brigade, you're they're the people who train you through it, yes, aren't they? You literally turn up at a fire station, whether it's a group of 12 or 20 of you, depending on the particular course, and firemen as part of their job uh, as um, instructors of safety give the course. Right. Okay. And now, I, that's obviously in French. I mean, that sounds like it's probably going to be quite technical. How is your French? Uh, my French, when it comes to technical, is quite good. My conversational is quite poor. So unless you're talking about uh, um, first aid or uh, technical issues to do with skiing or something like that. I mean, did you did you do anything to improve your French as, as part of the process? Not really, but I was lucky in that the first aid I had previously done almost everything we covered on the course. So it was for me, it was much more how does this work in French as opposed to learning the skills from scratch. Okay, and that course was two weeks, uh, uh, you said, yeah? Yes, yeah. And is there a pass or a fail, or essentially you just um, you do that, it two weeks? That particular qualification is uh, run as more of a continuous assessment. Right. And quite early on, you are pushed if you are weak in certain areas. Right, okay. Um, the, the spoken French was actually my struggle and was never between me and casualty but me and whoever was the base over a radio call okay but you you passed that so yes you've got your skiing qualifications your first aid qualifications and uh, i guess then you have to learn how to literally be a piece there right in my case it was a five-week residential course Okay. Uh, in some cases, it is six weeks, although the sixth week would actually be a little pointless for me, as it is a immersion English course. <laughs> right. Okay. But so you said that you qualified at Puy Saint so you got your test technique just yep. before uh, you know resorts were closed, lockdown. Yep. So when did this course uh, take place? A five-week course in November and December of this last autumn right your timing then has just been immaculate really in being able to fit <laughs> all of these things in quite right. a commitment though i mean obviously if someone's you know re changing their career or, or you know wanting to take mm -hmm. this up then i guess there's no way around it but a five-week residential course is a big deal and presumably it costs a bit of money as well right yes yes um all in just over three thousand euros for just the patrol course. Okay, and where was your course then? The uh, mine was in Les Ors, which is near Lac Embrun, south of Briançon. Lots, lots of your uh, stuff was in the southern French Alps, not ideally yep. located. It, yeah. Okay, and so five weeks in total, excluding you know, didn't have to do the uh, the UK week. What what are the kind of things that you tackle uh, during those weeks? Well, the first week is. Connaissance Moyenne Montagne, understanding the middle mountain. Two days of snow and weather knowledge and three days of bureaucracy because France. <laughs> right, okay. But so that's an interesting middle mountain. I've obviously heard of the high mountain before. Mm. We have you know, high mountain guys, but this is a separate area mm. of... Uh, the uh, French definition of 
high mountain is easier to understand than what is the middle mountain. Right. Uh, glaciers and rocks which re require ropes to climb. Middle mountains more the pisted areas then. It's anything that you don't need to rock climb to get into or walk upon a glacier. It's not actually an altitude. It's a terrain definition. Okay, okay. And when you say learning about, you know, weather and, and snow, the, the snow side of things is the type of thing that if you're doing an, an avalanche course, you look at the snow pack or something like that, is it? Um, yes, but in a, it only went into a very superficial depth. It is an uh, two separate add-on qualifications to a pista if you are becoming a weather observer or a snow specialist. Okay. And and in relation to weather then, are you, were you being taught then how to predict changes or? No. Um, how the weather that we have and what particular weathers affect our environment. Um, a good example being the fern effect, where on the windward side, you would get heavy snow and cold temperatures and on the leeward side, you would get warm temperatures and melting or rain and okay. how this may affect a ski resort. Right. You okay. have to remember a lot of people who are coming into this course haven't necessarily got mountain skills prior to this course. Right. I understand. Yeah. OK, that makes sense. So so you're learning all of that side of things about the mountain. You've got your first aid side of things as well. When mo when people think of pieces, most of the time, the contact with them is watching them bash a drag lift with a hammer uh, to <laughs> try and get it moving again or something. Or the more of a, a maybe a worst case scenario, they think of people with the uh, with what British people call a blood wagon. Presumably you have to practice that at some point as well. Yeah, the driving the blood wagon uh, due to the snow and the uh, COVID restrictions was only in our fourth and fifth week. Right. But the blood wagons, there are two very particular sorts here in France or actually in the Alps in general. One that would, ease, uh, would be probably best described as a, a, a towable sledge. It has one set of long poles coming out the end that you hold on to. Yeah. And it has a little tent that covers the, uh, the victim's head so that they don't get covered in the snow from your skis. Yeah, I think I but, can visualize that one, yeah. But these two long poles, when you push them down towards the snow, they apply some brakes to slow the sled down meaning it's quite easy for one person to control this sled, hence the lack of a set of poles on the other end. The other type is more of a, a bathtub <laughs> shape with handles normally with looped ends sticking out of both ends. Yeah. And it's more of a on-snow stretcher. You do slide it upon the snow most of the time, but you can pick it up and it, when loaded, it requires two people to uh, safely navigate the mountain. And would you say that one or either of those is more difficult than the other to, to handle, to get down a mountain? 
the one with two sets of handles requires um, a reasonable amount of coordination between the two of you. And it requires better skiing skills, but it, it's more because it's intended for use off piste. Right. Okay. So you have to cope with whatever's under your feet, hence the difficulty of the test technique, because you should be able to ski at any speed, regardless of the conditions. So you can concentrate upon keeping your victim comfortable as opposed to worrying about, can I make this next turn? Sure. And speed is obviously a factor as well, because if you have a, an injured party, then you want mm. to get them to medical attention as quickly as you can. Uh, more, you need to get yourself quickly to the scene to either alleviate their pain or just make them safe from other dangers. Yeah. With the speed. Um, getting them to safely quickly. We in France are taught to do as much as we can for them before we move them. Okay. In other parts of the world, um, the North American method is known as scoop and shoot by the French. <laughs> right. Scoop them up into the sledge and off you go. <laughs> Okay, so slightly different uh, approach, and mm. and I guess obviously you're not practicing. You know, there's no there's no victims. We must have presumably volunteer victims, and you're practicing. You're you're notionally on duty at the top of a lift. You get the call, and you have to respond quickly and and get a victim into a sled. We only once actually went through that in that sort of chronological order. We did spend two whole weeks and then every afternoon for the following two weeks practicing the first aid and then in the later two weeks at the very end the last move was load them into the sled okay and being a group of 26 we would normally split into three teams where you would have one victim one patroller in charge and then one to four assisting patrollers okay and you would do a rest either a simple or a complicated rescue scenario and this might not just be a complicated injury it may also be a complicated extraction okay so i can see there's lots of there's a lot of different elements in there i think you know this is probably very interesting to listeners because this is a scenario that they're most likely to have seen and is there a, a kind of protocol for how you alert other members of the public or how you decide that you're going to close down a piste or something like that? When arriving, say, at a, a piste accident, you would, first of all, take your skis off and cross them, as you would see, stereotypically, a crossed pair of skis. Yeah. And then you would take out your signpost, which is in your rescue sled, and put that up <clears throat> above the victim before actually approaching the victim. Okay. Um, if it is, I think the French word is probably best, un bordel, a complete mess. <laughs> um, yep. Once you have done these two things, then you would radio your central office to say that you need your colleagues to close the piste and so that's the the practice for you know the blood wagon side of things incidentally does that translate at all blood wagon do the french have an expression for that um no they don't call it a blood wagon <laughs> uh 
there are many things that do translate, but no, they would call one is a traineau and one is a barquette. Yeah. Okay. Um, both of which, when you put them into a translator or look them up in the dictionary, say sledge. Right. Okay. More, more simple. The British, the, the British translations such as peace basher and blood wagon are both mm. the slightly more dramatic uh, than mm. uh, you know snow groomer or uh, yeah. Or, Although or... the uh, the French, as well as calling a, a snow groomer a snow groomer, which is uh, dameuse, also call it yeah. an engine de damage. Um, <laughs> right. Which could be translated as engine of bashing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Maybe they're closer than I thought. In this final section, Tom tells us about the different type of pistas, the lifties and the avalanche security guys. And he also tells us where he might be working next season. The, uh, the keep or the team that run the lifts is generally a completely separate team. Although you as a pister, as a ski patroller, are expected to know how to not just stop a lift, but how to start it and control its speed. And I guess um, a, a part of or a key part of the course is in terms of avalanches. We referred to the snowpack uh, earlier. Often uh, the, the pisters, the snow patrol are the first on the scene for trying to find a, uh, a victim. That must be quite a big part of the course. Um, the searching for an avalanche victim, yes. The rest of the snow is a one to three, depending on which course, week course that you do as extra. There is um, snow and weather observer, which is a week course. There is pista level two, which is two weeks of snow study and one of regulation. And then there is a two week course of artificier, which would be explosives expert. Okay, okay. Tempted but, by that one. I think most people seem to think that that yes. was really appealing. The um, guys who who drop a, a, a dynamite over the edge of a cornice uh, to yes. uh, start um, avalanches. Um, we had all of that explained to us because we may be called upon to be an aid artificier, um, um, the assistant to the explosive expert, and all the... Um, rules and regulations because you are the safety backup you are the eyes you are the second set of ears in an explosives procedure and you carry the detonator until it's time to make an explosion but you don't get to play with the toys <laughs> yeah well it's still a pretty responsible job i mean on the podcast before I recall that we've um, covered a you know a number of these things. Uh, there was a program called um, A and E featured uh, the ski patrol in uh, Val Torrens, which was you know quite dramatised, but it was a really interesting insight. Mm -hmm. Now you have your qualification uh, now, but I presume this winter you haven't started work. Do you do you have a job confirmed? Would you be working if the lists were open? Um, I do not have a job confirmed, Prasarali have said we'll get back to you as soon as we're allowed to open but i'm yeah. more likely to end up next year in les contamines or the Mejere saint gervais area okay and when you say more likely is do you have a kind of connection or they just need more staff how, how does how does that work out i've been talking to all of them and i know that at least three of them didn't hire the 
two or three, depending on which resort, that they needed to fill their number of pistas this year because right. they were hedging their bets on the situation being as it is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, you know, when you do uh, start, let's say, you know, you're in uh, uh, Contamine working there during the winter. My impression is that it's not uh, very good if you're someone who likes to lie in because it's a pretty early start in the mornings. Is that right? Mm. A regular non-snow safety start would be um, walking out of the, for want of a better word, the locker room to yeah. get on the lift at in contamine it would normally be eight o'clock in the morning um on a normal non-snow safety morning on a snow yeah. safety morning you will be meeting your colleagues at five to ride up on a snowmobile or a snowcat so yeah you'd be up to the top of the slopes in my experience you often see you know, tracks, uh, the first tracks coming down, a bit of uh, uh, maybe untracked powder from the uh, the pieces, the ski patrol. Is that part of the appeal at all? <laughs> um, not so much because I've been lucky enough um, on a personal and professional standpoint to get first tracks for at least 50% of the days of a winter in one particular job that we will touch on in the future on. Um, first tracks every run for the whole winter right sorry are you referring to the <laughs> to um, Makuni, the, the cat, is that skiing. This cat skiing operation in japan yeah. right so you've you've had your fill of uh had mm. your fill of that but unfortunately no um no job for this season do you think there's any chance you'll work this season at all or do you think um, that this season is you know... towards the very end of the season but more of the Yes, we'd like you for next season. We want you to help us shut down the resort so you know what where things are to set it up the next autumn. You know, it's a really interesting story, uh, Tom. And I think uh, there'll be a lot of people out there who will be tempted by that idea of becoming, a, you know, a ski patroller, uh, etc. But, uh, you know, hopefully... Um, you know, when we go out to uh, Contamine or Majev, uh, you know, next season... We maybe maybe we won't hope that we'll see you because if we see you, then that means that we're probably in trouble. But hopefully you'll be out there, um, you know, looking after us and keeping the uh, piece in shape. So thank you very much for sharing uh, all of that uh, for us. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on the show again to talk about that cat skiing operation in Japan and maybe about mm -hmm. Idris uh, skis uh, as well. So thanks very much for your time today, Tom. You take care, Ed. Hi there, listener. Ian here. I just wanted to let you know that you can now support the ski podcast at buymeacoffee.com. This blank season has been a tough winter for all snow lovers. I've spent a lot of time and put in a lot of effort to try and give you an episode every week through this winter to give you your taste of snow, even if we can't go out there ourselves. Now, I do it anyway because I love skiing, but if you do enjoy the ski podcast and you'd like to support us, then you can literally buy me a coffee, or in my case, a tea, at buymeacoffee.com. Just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash the ski podcast. Thanks very much.